everyone, this is Terry Anderson on the podcast Digging Through Dominoes. And this is a podcast that we look through the dominoes of our past to see how they're playing out in our future, how we can draw some new ones and change the game. Today's guest I met on a town hall I did on Oregon's Measure 110. Her name is Crystal Delahante, and she is the founder of the nonprofit PDX Saints Love. So let's jump into this incredible, heartbreaking, and inspiring interview with Crystal. Hey, everyone, this is Crystal Delahante. As I was telling you, I met her at a town hall that they were speaking about something in Oregon called Measure 110, which hopefully looks like it's going to be repealed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And she started PDX Saints Lab in 2017. So everybody, welcome Crystal. I'll put all of her information in the show notes below. And I want to find out a little bit what brought Crystal to the place she is now, because she wasn't always in this place. So you openly admit you were addicted at one time. Mm -hmm. What brought you to that point? Was it something in childhood? Was it something that was just, oh, here, I'm going to try this and you get addicted that you hear those stories. And I'm thinking generally there's always something that's either happened in childhood, abuse, uh, neglect, um, trauma of some sort that could or could not be related to your family of origin. What's your story? Um, so for me, uh, and honestly, while I was experiencing it, because I didn't know any other way, mm -hmm. it didn't feel that unnormal. Um, right. But looking back and now after he, uh, years of therapy and healing and, and realizing, wow. Um, so I lived in a house with severe um, domestic violence, mm. um, but not only um, was I visibly watching that domestic violence happen to my mother, um, me as the stepchild to her husband also endured um, some pretty severe violence. Right. Um, and it wasn't just uh, the violence, but it was the um, really a lot of psychological abuse around um, the physical abuse would happen. And then he would come back in and, and nurture me and say, oh, wow, you're such a good artist. You're such a good, you know, um, you're so intelligent and so smart. And so there, there was this part of me that um, really thrived in what he thought of me or if I was accepted or belong in that place. Mm -hmm. um, there was also a large part of me that always knew that I didn't fit here. Um, my mom had married him and she had two other daughters and there was definitely a distinct difference made between, um, me and the two other daughters, mm -hmm. um, my sisters. And, um, and that was the most seen in, um, in the physical violence is that, um, it never happened to them, but oh. very often happened to me and my mother. How old were you when she married him or when he came into your life? 
Um, so I think I was about two. So he was actually my um, biological father's boss. And oh. the story is, is that he had sent my biological father out of town on um, a work project. And mm-hmm. while my, um, and my, unfortunately, my biological father was um, an alcoholic and also shoved and pushed my mom around. Um, and so when he was gone out of town, from work, my stepdad came and and just swept her off her feet. He was an older man. Um, She was very young. She was 16 when she had me. And so um, he was 12 years older than her and he just promised her the world. And he did at the time look like he had it all together. And, um, and so she ended up leaving, uh, left my dad. um, And then my dad just kind of disappeared and, never came back again. And so I didn't really have um, anyone coming for me. Mm-hmm. And so um, the abuse lasted um, until I was 16. And um, during that time, um, he had broke my jaw. He um, crushed my uh, vertebrae right above my tailbone. So I have something called spondylolisthesis in my spine now and will be there forever. And, mm-hmm. um, and then just from years of chronic abuse, um, I have fibromyalgia in my, um, in my muscles. And so when I, uh, when I was 16 is when um, he finally uh, broke my jaw. And the police came and um, he went to jail. And I think it was just the year prior to that, because over the years she had called the police on him many times. And then he would call her and he was very narcissistic and very, um, you know, he knew how to get back in every time. And so um, thankfully at 16, the year before that, they had passed a law in the county that we were living in that once there was a domestic violence, no contact order, that the victim could not break it. Mm-hmm. And it saved my life. Um, she could not go back. And um, and so we were able to have reprieve. She was able to have some time to get her mind right and um, and realize that you know, she was going to need to do this without him. Um, unfortunately by that time, my, um, my body was just remembering all of the trauma and those those somatic memories. Right. And And let me ask you something. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but I don't want to forget this. There are a lot of people that don't understand fibromyalgia and they think it's just a myth. Yeah. Can you explain to people what that is? And because your body has to get rid of this abuse somehow. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little so, bit about that? Um, for me, what it started feeling like was my shoulders just would burn. And just across the tops of my shoulder blades and they would burn. Um, and I always felt like I was just tensed up. Mm-hmm. And so, and then eventually it started with, it would just come down my shoulders and into my arms and then into the backs of my legs and the muscles in my legs. Just like a burning feeling? It would, it would be like a burning feeling. Like, um, when you have the flu, like yeah. that 
that flu burn on your skin, that's mm-hmm. what deep in my muscles would feel like. Oh my God. Um, and so, and once I turned about 21, um, about 20, I started um, seeing a doctor and she was explaining to me that it was likely fibromyalgia. Um, I think that that's kind of right around the time, like the ACEs scores came out. And so we did that and she started going through my childhood and she's like, I, I can bet this is, this is what we're dealing with. You have had chronic abuse for, you know, 12 years. CPTSD. Um, Yeah. And violence and your body is holding all of this trauma in all of your muscles. And, um, on top of the fact that, you know, at a young age, your body's still developing and like it's right. being, um, it's being harmed mm-hmm. over and over again. And so, um, your body really does keep the score of all of those things. It does. Vessel van der Kolk. Yes. Yeah. Book. Very good book. Um, and so, um, at, at 16, when he finally left my, my body, I, I can't remember a time in my entire life, actually, that my body hasn't hurt. Wow. It has just always held pain, physical pain in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I've just come to a place of just tolerance of that pain. Right. Um, but at that time, um, so I would take like ibuprofen, you know, things like that. And then I um, found uh, weed and started just smoking mm-hmm. with friends. And it was extremely helpful, not necessarily for the pain as much, but it took the the desire for me to be tensed up all the time, which magnifies the pain. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and then as I went through those next three years, I started to just experiment with drugs. And um, here and there, something would grab onto me for a minute and then I'd, I'd put it down and, you know, nothing ever just grabbed a hold of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I turned 19, 20 and um, started seeing this doctor um, and I was telling her about the pain and um, all of that, she prescribed me Dilaudid. And um, finally, oh my gosh, my body really? didn't yeah. And so, um, we went through, I think that first year on Zelotted and your, my, your body just kind of acclimates to it really quickly. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, now I've learned about like our opiate receptors and like, they mm-hmm. want more and more and more. And so what it, our body lies to us and says, no, that pain's actually here. And so it amplifies, and so I went back in and she finally, she ended up switching me over to, um, Oxycontin. Oh yeah. And, um, within the next two years, um, that was kind of the 2002, 2003, when FDA was really cracking down on, um, Oxycontin mm-hmm. and come to find out my, the doctor who had prescribed me at such a young age, uh, on this medication lost her license for over prescribing, not just me, but many, many patients. Wow. And, um, this is before, um, you know, the FDA set up pain management clinics to help people who were coming off um, pharmaceuticals prescribed by their doctors. And so um, very quickly, I was able to find someone on the street and buy them. And so that I could stay 
safe and well at that time. And I still kind of really didn't realize that maybe I had an addiction that I had developed more than just kind of caring for my body. And, um, over the next year or so, the pills became extremely expensive and up, upwards of like $50 a pill. Wow. And um, I couldn't manage my habit any longer. And by this time, I'm working full time um, in the accounting department for a hotel. And no one knew that I'm struggling with this um pill addiction. And so, and I'm a, by this time also a single mom and, um, thinking I need to do something to get off of these. And ask you, because you brought up an interesting point. No one knew that you were struggling with this addiction. And I think what a, a lot of people think is that when you're using oxy all of the time, it's some high and it's not, it's to stay normal. It's to stay normal, safe and well is what I call it. Um, mm-hmm. I During that part of my addiction, um, I never remember being high or like doing it to party or, you know, it became a point where if I didn't have it, I couldn't go to work. And mm-hmm. if I didn't have it, you know, my, my body would just start spiraling. Mm-hmm. And so um, when it we couldn't get any pills. And, um, there was a point where I ended up really, really sick for a few days and I missed a couple of days of work, which I already in my mind am thinking, um, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. You know, I'm a single mom living in an apartment and, um, and so I, I just had to go back and I paid what I could and I ended up starting to do like payday loans. And um, I just got in this really, really bad cycle. During that first year or so, I actually met my first husband and um, we moved in together. And um, quickly after, he broke his ankle and ended up on um, uh, oxycodone, which is just like the mm-hmm. smaller version of it. And um He was on it for, I think, eight weeks because he literally crushed his ankle. And so by the end of that eight weeks, he was taking more than he was prescribed and then taking my pain medicine. And so now we are here both, not just my addiction and my struggling with, but now we're both in this together. And so Mm we kept telling each other, we're going to do this. We have to, we we're going to take some time off. And so we actually both decided to take a week off and we were going to just get sick and get it out of our body and, you know, go on with it. And, um, and it ended up perfectly because the person that we were buying them from ended up getting uh, arrested. And so I'm like, okay, this is, we're going to take this week off. We're going to do this. Um, we got to day four and we were so sick, so sick. How, um, how can you describe what happens when you just cold turkey like that? Um, so it starts out like the flu, like your body starts to sting really bad. Your muscles start to ache, your joints 
like your knees, your elbows, they hurt so bad that you can't stay still. You're trying to like get this energy out of your body that's just stuck there. Wow. Um, and then by day three, you're in cramping and vomiting and diarrhea. Um, you are dehydrated and your body can feel it, but you can't take anything in because everything wants to come right back up. Mm-hmm. You're sweating. It's rapid breathing. Everything that touches you or breathes breath on you or any, everything hurts. We couldn't be in the same room um, while we were going through this. I didn't want to hear his voice. The house smelled, everything smelled weird. Um, even just the room and the colors are off when you're in withdrawal. Everything feels unreal. Um, and so by day four, it was more than my body could handle. Like I just couldn't handle it. And I killed you. It wouldn't have. Well, I mean, at that time, what we were reading is that we, it couldn't have killed us that we we felt like we were safe, that people had done it before. Mm -hmm. Um, but all I started, started thinking is like, um, you know, my family had my child, they still didn't know why they thought we were taking, um, vacation. They didn't understand that we were going through withdrawal at home, sicker than a dog. Um, I needed to go back to work that next Monday and I don't know how many more days this was going to take. And so I started calling around. I'm like, we can't do it right now. We're going to have to do medical intervention. We're we're not going to be able to do it this week. And so we started calling around for pills and couldn't find any, like none. Wow. And, um, one of the friends that we called, um, he also sold heroin and he said, you know, I know you guys aren't into this, but like, I know you're sick. And like, if this is something you're, you know, you want to do and just until you get a hold of something. And we were both just adamantly, no, 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 no. And, um, by that evening, I hurt so bad that I was just saying, you know what, whatever it takes to get to tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so um, we called him back and they delivered it straight to our house. And um, when I did it, I didn't only get well, but um, it's hard to explain for the first time um not only did my body not hurt, but my heart didn't either. And um, I've explained this before. And um, when I'm talking about what heroin was like in my life is um, when you're driving down the freeway and it's pouring rain and the rain is just beating on the top of your car. And then you go under an overpass and for a split second, all of the chaos and the sound and the rain and the the vibrations stop. Mm -hmm. That was what heroin was like for my broken heart. My entire life was intrusive thoughts about why did this happen to me? Why did my dad leave me? How come he never came back for me? Why did this man hate me? Maybe I'm inherently bad. Maybe it was because I was rude or rebellious or I should have changed something about myself. Why did my mom let this happen to me? Mm -hmm. Um, These were thoughts that 
that empowered every moment of my day constantly and, um, and told me and wrote a narrative constantly about who I was and, um, and what I was worthy of and everything that I was not worthy of. Right. And so, um, in that moment, everything stopped and it shut down and I fell in love with heroin. Wow. Wow. And I can, I can see looking back, I know with my childhood, I wish that everything would stop. I didn't look at my childhood, mm -hmm. but there was a lot of narcissism. There was a lot of things in my life telling me, you're not worth it. You're not worth it. You're not worth it. So I can see where that just stopping for a moment mm -hmm. would be so, it makes me really glad I never tried it because I think I would have gone on the way you're describing it because there was so much pain right it, it drove my life so what what was that like did you know you were addicted or did you know that it just helped what was so your thought process in that moment um immediately I knew um this is dangerous oh because I love it. You know, I knew immediately. Um, and so I started to try to rewrite, you know, this is just for a short time. This is not something that's going to, that we're going to let in our life. And, um, you know, and, and my husband at the time was also kind of experiencing some of his own childhood traumas and things that he was struggling through with his own worth. And, um, and so we both, knew immediately that, um, this is so bad for who we are and for the pain that we carry. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we used it for the next couple of days until we were able to get a hold of the pills again. And then what happened is over the next couple of months, we would just exchange the pills for the heroin every once in a while wow. on a weekend or one, it was, you know, probably one twenty-fifths of the cost, right? Um, you know, and, um, and then eventually the pills just became less and then the heroin became more. Um, and so over those next, um, 15 years, uh, that's, that was our life. Um, we were, what I look back and say, um, functioning, um, hold on. Sorry. Um, when I look back, um, we were pretty functioning. We both worked full time. Um, and then we started a roofing company together and, um, we're pretty successful, um, and then in about 2011 is when it, I started seeing it impact more parts of our life. Um, I was no longer, um, working by that time outside of the house. I just worked, you know, kind of answering phones and, um, and doing contracts for a business. And then, um, and then I started selling it and oh. I started selling it 
um, to be able to one, afford our habit where that it didn't impact our household. Mm-hmm. Um, we had at that time, a 16 year old son, um, my son, and, um, he went to school every day. He, um, he never missed anything. He did football after school. I was at every football practice. I was very involved mom. No one had any idea. Did and he then, have any idea? He had no idea. No idea. Um, how my entire family found out is in 2012, um, after I had been selling it for a little over a year, I went and, um, and picked up in the morning and, um, went to start meeting people. And one of the first people that I met were a couple that I'd been selling to for almost a year. And, um, they ended up robbing me and I fought. And, um, when I fought the, the female, the male reached into the car and grabbed out a knife and stabbed me four times. Oh my God. And, um, I ended up in the trauma unit with 17 heartbeats per minute left. And, um, I remember when they were wheeling me into surgery and she was asking me to sign a paper and who do I call? And, um, all I remember is saying, can you call my mom? And, um, and so, um, I don't remember giving them a number or anything or how they found out how to get a hold of her. But, um, when I woke up after surgery, cause they needed, it, they did blood transfusions. I didn't, I was losing so much blood and, um, I woke up to my son in the hospital and he's just staring at me and he's like, what happened? I don't, I don't know how this happened. And, and then I told him what, what we've been going through and what's been going on. And, um, at that moment, I made a decision that I was never going to do heroin again. Um, because the people on it are unpredictable. Um, they're being driven by their addiction and their addiction isn't even in their mind anymore. It's in their physical body. And when you're desperate to be safe and well, you do things that are unpredictable. And so, um, I started going to the methadone clinic and then, um, and it was, it still didn't help it. My body was still hurting pretty, pretty severely. And so someone told me, um, if I could use uh, Klonopin and meth and then it would help me. And uh, I was like, okay, sure. You know, whatever, whatever stops the pain. And um, I ended up doing that for another nine months and very quickly um, we lost everything. Uh, My husband and I um, separated during that time because he didn't want to quit using heroin. And I was very, afraid of it. Um, we lost our house. We lost our business. Um, I was couch surfing and put my son with his stepmom while I tried to figure out what I was going to do. And, uh, in that world, as a female, you have a couple of choices Mm -hmm. and you have nowhere to go. Right. You know, and there are plenty of men who will hold a couch or a bedroom 
or a shower over you. Um, and I was just unwilling. And so, um, in order to survive, I became very criminally minded and I started writing checks and then I learned how to shave keys and, um, and steal cars. And so eventually in 2013, um, I was, arrested for my first three felony charges in Clark County. And then, uh, a week later, nine more felony charges in Oregon. And so I, um, I OR'd out in Oregon. Um, so first Washington wrote, wrote me a citation because it was my very first, um, charge and I was supposed to come back to court. I didn't go back to court got arrested in Oregon, OR'd in Oregon, and um, ran. And so what is OR for people that don't know? Um, they let me out on my own recognizance, <clears throat> a recognizance um, with just basically a promise that I'll come back to court. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I did it. I ran. And so um, for the next 17 days, I um, I stayed awake. I didn't sleep. I... Um, uh, the t- detectives in Clark County were um, looking for me for the three felony warrants that I walked out on over there. And they continued to um, do knock and talks on my acquaintances' doors, which led for to a place where no one wanted me to come and stay. And so I was becoming more desperate, um, scared, not having a place to rest. And so um, on the uh, 17th day, I stole a car and I took the car up to um, Washougal River, which is a, um, a river I used to fish with my ex-husband. And as I was driving up, and my first intention was literally just to get out of the city for a little bit. Um, my mind was just screaming And, um, you know, in the beginning of this story and doing drugs and finally like having everything disappear for a little bit at this moment, it was magnified every voice, every narrative ever written over me of who I was and who I was never going to be was just racing through my mind. And so I was trying to get out of the city and I started up Washougal river road and just this peace came over me and I decided I'm going to put my car in the river. Mm. And, um, it's really weird because I had never had, um, suicidal ideation before. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I never thought that in that moment it would be so peaceful. And, um, So I stepped on the gas and started heading up there and I knew exactly, um, at eight miles, I was going to put my car into a place called the, uh, big Eddie where there's Mm -hmm. rushing water that comes around that I wouldn't have an opportunity to get my car back out of there. And, um, when I got there, um, by no conscious decision of my own, I slammed on the brakes going 60 miles an hour. And I ended up in that parking lot and I started screaming, God damn you. 
no, damn you, I have nothing to go back for. I have nothing left. Um, and so I started crying in that dirt, the gravel pit there. And um, after a couple of hours of just sobbing every bit of pain that's been stuck in my body for years, I looked up and I said, God, if there is anything, anything left repairable in me, would you show me now? And I glanced over and I saw a car that I hadn't seen parked there before. And it just had dealer plates on it that said um, Nissan Gladstone. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I knew my mama lived out in Gladstone next to the Nissan dealership. And I hadn't talked to her in years um, because of, for me, I felt like all of my abuse happened because she allowed it. And um, I just felt an urging in me that said, go home. And so um, I went in there and um, met with her and then I turned myself into County and um, I did my time there and they let me out. I ended up being in there for a few months waiting for court and signed up for a diversion program because those were my first um, felonies of that kind in, in that County. And um, they allowed me out on a community um, custody program. And so I just had to go through a diversion program. And so I would, I let them know, okay, well, I have to go to Multnomah County now. I am facing, you know, nine felonies over there. And so I got out and went to turn myself into Portland. And the district attorney, when I called her, she said, um, you know, we're, we don't have enough evidence to take you to trial. Wow. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> um, because I remember that night, the night I got, I got pulled over in a stolen car. Um, they put a taser to the back of my head to put me down to the ground. Um, we sat in the back of a cop car for hours while they went through that car and found a gun, found a, a switchblade, um, both concealed weapons charges, um, they got me for the UUMV for the car that I was in and possession of stolen motor vehicle for the four bills of sales I they found inside the car. Um, there was methamphetamines and a backpack full of identities. So they had it. They had what they needed. They had what they divine needed. intervention. It was something. It, it was beyond this place. Definitely, right. it was divine. Um, And so she said, you know, call back, you know, for the next two years, we have two years, we can bring this back up. You know, if you definitely, if you go out and you get in trouble again, this will, it will come back up. And so, um, I knew my life had to change. Like this was my one opportunity for things Mm -hmm. to change. And thankfully for, you know, the small time that I was in jail in Clark County, I was able to completely cleanse my body. Um, So when I went in there, and this is just a trick that I had learned, um, you know, on the streets is I was told if you go in there to tell them that you're an alcoholic so that they can give you Librium um, because there's nothing worse than withdrawing from heroin in county jail and because they don't give you anything. And so um, 
they did, they gave me Librium um, for the first few days in there. And so I didn't experience the worst of any kind of withdrawals. Um, And by this time, I had been nine months off the heroin anyway. It was just the, um, what we believe there were opiates kind of mixed in by that time into the mess. Now we know today it is in all of it. Um, And then the Klonopin that I was doing here and there to kind of help. And so, um, but yeah, they just did it for the first few days um, as if I was an alcoholic. And I, I had to keep coming out and getting my blood pressure checked, you know, with all of the people that were like coming out of, you know, what they call like the drunk tank or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, whatever. Yeah, I drink like five beers a day and just, you know, saying whatever I had to say to get medicated. <laughs> so I wasn't sick in there. Right. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was kind of the intervention that had to happen um, for me to have gotten my uh, my life together. So you're you're in county jail. <clears throat> you do your time. Mm-hmm. You're off of everything. What did you do next? Did you know what to do next? I had no idea what to do next. I. When, um, when I got released and my mom came and picked me up and I just remember sitting in her car and saying, I don't even know who I am. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It has, um, it's been so long since I've not had something on board. I don't know who I am. I don't know what music I like or what I'm good at, or um, I don't even know what I like to do. I don't know who I am. And um, by this time, uh, she's kind of got her life together and she's remarried and and she's just taking me home and she's saying, you know, we'll figure it out. And uh when I got back there, um, I ended up finding out I was pregnant and, um, and I'm still separated from, you know, my husband. And so I just start working on one day today. I'm not going to use, you know, tomorrow I'm not going to use. And it was really, really hard. And, um, there, I remember there were many days sitting there saying, this is bullshit. I I don't want to do this. Like, why do people do this? Why do people live lives like this where you have to sit in this pain and this heartbreak all of the time? And I didn't get it. And so, and I wanted to quit so many times. And it was honestly this baby growing inside of me that just reminded me I've got to do something different. And so I feel like um, that pregnancy was God's way of giving me a moment of clarity where I had no choice but to be sober. Right. And so in that time, I found, um, I found spirituality in a new way, in a deeper way, um, in a way of wonder and, um, and curiosity and love. And um, I got really uh, involved in uh, my spiritual community 
and started to, to develop friendships um, with women who, um, who just lived differently than the life that I had ever learned how to live. And so, you know, kind of just watching and mimicking at first because I didn't know exactly who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and during my pregnancy, I started to reach back out to my husband at the time and, um, and to help him get clean. And so in the first couple of years, we, we tried really hard. Um, he went to detox multiple times. Um, unfortunately it just had a deeper grasp on him. Mm -hmm. And so he would go and then he would come out and he'd be clean for five, six months, and then he would relapse again. And so, uh, finally my little one was born and, um, we were doing really good for a little bit. And then, um, and I started couponing and, um, I got up one day to cut, to go to the store to do coupons and went to put the baby in the car. I put him in, buckled him in the back, went to get in the front seat and looked over and I saw, um, a syringe and a cap and, you know, it had heroin in it. And then there was the bag and it still had the heroin next to it. And I just started crying and I called him at work and said, I just said, why would you do this? You can't ever come back here. You can never come back here now because not only now are you relapsing, but you're putting me at risk of relapsing Mm -hmm. or being pulled over with my baby in the car. And, you know, I've got this lengthy record and there's no doubt my car would be searched if I got pulled over. And, um, and so I had to tell the love of my life that you're never allowed to come home. You're never allowed to come home again. And I remember screaming on that phone call and it was the worst pain I have ever experienced in my heart. Um, and, um, yeah, I just had to make a difference to do something different. And, um, unfortunately in that story, um, he went on and stayed out. And then last year, this month coming, um, his addiction took his life. Um, and I was able to go and spend his last five days with him in the hospital before, um, he left this place. Wow. That had to have been excruciating. It was hard. It was very hard. So was that another pivotal moment? I can only assume that that would have been another moment for you to say, I've got to go forward. Absolutely. Um, Losing him last year, um, although I had been remarried, um, Mm -hmm. I've been with my current husband eight years now. um, I had been remarried, but that chapter was never closed, right? right? I never left him because I didn't love him or that I didn't care for him. I left him just to save my life. And so that kind of that guilt and that pain had always just been underlying and it was never Mm -hmm. dealt with. And so um, spending those last five days with him and watching this drug, um, what it had done to his body and what it did over the five days um, while his body was shutting down. I tell people um, now, 
I will never be the crystal I was pre-June of last year. Um, she's just, I'm not the same person. And it's good because it comes with, first of all, um, so many things seem petty to me now. Um, but I am so fiery and passionate about life and humanity and the complexities of their stories and what trauma looks like and what it does to our bodies and what it does to our families. Um, and, um, and just changing policies and, and systems that keep us held down. And I, Mm -hmm. I do that. And I look back at my life, um, you know, had there been a qualified mental health associate that was in the schools when I was experiencing some of the worst domestic violence and could have recognized that and walked in solidarity with me, um, my life might've been totally different, you know? And the same, there's many moments in my life that had there been systems set up to support me that I could have been saved. I could have been rescued. Mm -hmm. And now that's what you're trying to do with your organization. That is what we're trying to do. Yeah. So in a way, had you not had this background, you wouldn't be able to do what you're doing now. That's right. I would not have, um, without lived experience, you cannot walk in solidarity with hurting people. Um, Hurting people, we can sniff you out um, first thing if you've never experienced it. Um, And so the only way to take hope into the dark is to have experienced the dark yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. People don't understand that. A lot of times it's just judgment. I don't want to see it. I'm going to look away. Right. Because I don't want to have to deal with it. Right. So you started PDX Saints Love. Is that correct? Yes. I flipped change pages since then. Um, into 2017. Mm-hmm. But then last year, it, it must have made an even larger impact on you with what you're doing why did you start the organization and how has it shifted um I a couple years into my recovery um well there there were some personal reasons and and just kind of seeing the heartbreak in my city but Mm -hmm. um one we had um just had a, a new baby And I had been working up to that. And, and there was this little fiery spite that was in me in my first couple years of recovery of I'm not going back and I'm never depending on anyone again. And I'm going to work my ass off and I'm going to get it together. And so my poor current husband had to come in to this very strong, stubborn willed woman. And, um, and so, uh, we got pregnant with Elijah and um, we decided that I was going to stay home for a bit. And um, that stressed me out because I realized looking back every time I had ever put my security in someone else's hands, they harmed me mm-hmm. and I didn't want to do that. And so I kept um, praying and just asking, what does this look like for me in this season? And so um 
you know, my, my older one was in daycare. And so he would do daycare for four and a half hours every day, every day, Monday through Friday. And, um, and so I would go and drop him off and come back and I'd have my little baby in the back seat. And as I'm coming back through East Portland, I'm watching the heartbreak of homelessness and Mm -hmm. substance use disorder and mental health and, and trauma and just abuse happen on, on my streets and in my Mm -hmm. neighborhood. And there's this part of me that feels guilty that I walked out and I'm here and I'm experiencing, experiencing this marriage and these children now. And, um, and what can I do to go back? And so, um, one day I was just coming back and there was a woman, she was standing there and she was kind of hunched over. And I remember that downcast posture because I live my life in shame. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I said, um, I'm not sure what you're leading me into, but what do you, what do you want from me, God? And, um, I thought about, I have leftovers at home and I was like, oh, you know, I really can't afford this, God. (laughs) Um, and, uh, so I went home and I warmed it up and I came back and I had Elijah in the back seat and, um, I got out and handed her the food and tried to have a conversation and, you know, it's not really working. She, she took the food and, and I wasn't really expecting anything. And when I said, um, you know, what are your barriers? Because I know for me, my barriers out here. And in the moment I said that she realized I'm a peer and that I'm not coming out here to do charity, to check any kind of goodness, righteousness box that I'm just mm-hmm. a peer. And she looked at me and then she looked at the car where Elijah was in there and she um, started talking and she said, I'm struggling with addiction. And then we didn't end there because addiction is the small part, right? right. And I said, um, you know, what does that look like? How, how did that come into your life? And, and so we got to talk about some abuse and things, um, in her own life. And, um, I ended up being there for about 45 minutes and by the end of it, we're laughing and like, we've become kind of friends Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I recognize that she's now standing up and she's looking at me and like, we are and we are equals and she just found community and, um, and it clicked in my heart. Um, I don't have the answers to homelessness. I don't have all of the answers to addiction or substance abuse, or I don't know how to get someone from, you know, down here to healed from childhood trauma, but you know what I'm really good at community. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I started. I started making a big pot of chili and putting it in the back of my car on Fridays. Cause I'm at, I'm the stay at home mom and totally bored mm-hmm. and, um, going out and finding friends. And, um, in that first year, it was really just about listening. And as I listened and I had deep curiosity about people, they told me what they need. And that's how the organization came about. Wow. Mm-hmm. That was 2017. And here yeah. we are, 2023. Mm-hmm. You must yeah. have some incredible and heartbreaking stories. 
We do. Yeah. Over the last years, there's been um, lots of hope and lots of um, loss. And, you know, there's a couple times a month that I'm completely gutted. And um, we have to keep taking um, what I tell my team now. Um, we have to find the glimmers and glows. And so, you know, um, last week we lost someone to a fentanyl overdose and he was a young kid and we were very close to him. And um, the following Monday after we lost him, I looked up from cutting hair on site to a mother standing there staring at me with tears rolling down her face because she just wanted to come out and meet the people that cared for her son. Um, and I came home gutted, gutted the whole night. Like I'm, I can't save my children. Like this family was pretty healthy. They had it all together. Like he didn't go through the trauma and abuse that I did, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I do, I sit in suffering and I sit in pain a lot. And then, you know, just a couple days later, we had someone who showed up on site who we thought we had lost. We hadn't seen him in five months. And he said, no, I listened to you. I took that resources. I'm clean and sober right now. I have got wow. my car back. I'm going to visit my daughter today. Mm -hmm. And so we're just, we, we teach one another that we have to hold on to the glimmer and close or we cannot keep doing this. Exactly. Exactly. And you've got to remember you're offering what you do, your experience, you're a peer, you have resources, but ultimately it's not your choice. And you have to hold on to the success that you have. I don't want to say created because they've created this success for themselves, but you've enabled it. And without you, you wouldn't have those glimmers and glows more than likely. So you're in the, the Lentz area of Portland. Is that where you mainly? We are. On? Yeah, we're based on in Lentz, um, at, but we are all of East Portland. So, okay. um, I mean, I guess out to like 122nd is our, our um, cutoff. Okay. That's where I am. Mm -hmm. Wow. Crystal. I just can't, well, I can't imagine, but I can't imagine, you know, I have my years, my decade fighting for my son. Yes. And there were so many times I've gone back since his death and looked at a lot of the videos that my playlist um, on my main channel, Joshua's journey. And there were so many times there were glimmers of hope. Mm-hmm. And he just got washed. It just got washed over. He got, he fell in the cracks. Yeah. And you're there helping to pull these people out of the cracks. Yeah. It, um, and that's kind of where our team has been focusing on a lot this year, you know, for the prior few years, we've been doing that kind of direct service and, mm -hmm. and it has been 
extremely helpful and we'll still always continue to do direct service especially like during the pandemic nothing was open all mm -hmm. people could rely on were us being in the streets for a meal or understanding of what's happening um but as the world opens back up right now we are not just there for direct services we want to hear your stories and if you've tried a b and c in this county and it's not working and no one's calling you back, I'm gonna get on the phone because I wanna know why. Right. Why are you not being called back? Why are you not being seen and heard and valued? And so our organization is, is moving really towards questioning systems and institutions that keep us here. That needs to be done. I cannot underscore that enough. Mm-hmm. It's almost in a way, and I know that I'm very jaded with this, but it's, in my experience, it seemed like, and I can be very long, very wrong, but to me, it seemed like if there was ever hope, the system was there to dash it. If there was ever any chance of Joshua making three steps forward, they would make sure that he made six steps backwards. And this aging, you're in a position that a lot of the, the city or state organization, organizations are not in. People don't age out from you. Mm -hmm. We had Joshua age out from worker, from worker, from worker. And all that does is it creates more of a space for him to fall into the depth. Right. So I, you, you help with all ages. We help with all ages. We help with um, pretty much if there's something that comes at us, we will try to help navigate someone towards the resource that they need. And so, you know, um, one of the things that uh, we're not uh, – a culturally specific organization because mm -hmm. we are just so generalized, mm -hmm. but I will not just get on the phone with someone who might be a refugee or immigrant coming to our city and say, okay, well, actually we don't do that. So here called this place. Right. What I will do is say, Hey, you know, I don't have services that I feel like could be specifically tailored to you, but let's me and you call this place together mm -hmm. and let me help you navigate getting enrolled in some services there. And that's what people need. People yeah. need one for people to answer the phone. There's nothing that I can't stand worse is that nothing in the city, no organization, they just don't answer their phone No, they don't. Um, or do they call back in a timely manner? No. And when you're dealing with humans who are at the bottom of their rope and they're feeling hopeless and defeated, um, and your call means the world to them, mm -hmm. but they don't get it. Mm -hmm. I mean, just think about the re-traumatization re that we continue to do to humans in those right. systems. Um, and so that's where our organization, although we're very small, we're mighty. One of the things that we teach in staff meetings constantly is you call people back no matter what. Um if I see client journals come through with our staff 
and um, I don't see a name more than one time, I'm asking that staff member, hey, have you reached back out to this person? When's the last time you've spoken to them? I want to make sure that we're not doing the same status quo that we've seen across this city. I want to ensure that people are seen and heard and valued. And I might not have all, all the answers, but I will fight with you to figure it out. That's so refreshing. And that, like I said before, that this is your organization. With Joshua, I think the the last interaction I had with an outreach program, the guy that spoke with me was very optimistic and he got right back with me and he's saying, hey, Joshua has checked every box for years for being prioritized being hospitalized, getting these services. I don't know why he hasn't. I will do everything I can to make sure he's taken care of, that we can get him, because he had me as an advocate. And I think they saw that. I would do anything to help my son. Well, a couple of weeks go by and I don't hear from him. Mm. So I called them and he said, oh my gosh, I'm glad you called. I completely forgot about Joshua. I'm going to go out and look for him today. So there I'm feeling again, what do I do? Where do I turn? This is, this has happened too many times. Mm -hmm. And the next time I heard from him was when I messaged him because I, by that time I was feeling so hopeless because no one, but one social worker ever called me back. I, mess- I didn't message him anymore. It was just kind of a waste of my time. I, I felt mm-hmm. I kept going out to look for my son. The last time I messaged him was the day after I found out Joshua had died. And I, I still have his texts on here. And it, I, I, I was like, I just want to let you know, we've lost our son. Oh my gosh, what happened? What happened? And I'm like, Nobody was there for him, and this is what happened. This is where he was found. Never heard a word back. No, I'm sorry. No, what can I do for you? Because now I'm in crisis mode. Right, right. Nothing. So what you're doing is so important because, I mean, I'm pretty tenacious, but after 10 years of trying to fight some pretty grifty nonprofits and the state and the city. I I didn't know where to turn and I didn't know you at that time. I mm-hmm. wish I had. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you until the town hall mm-hmm. it was the first time that I met you. And, but you know, then again, I have to say, I do believe timing is everything when the last time I saw Joshua, I'm not sure if I told you this or not, but the last time I saw Joshua, I knew that he was in a state he could not come back from. And I used to get so angry with my husband for saying, I'm just praying for God to take him. It's like, stop that prayer. Just Mm -hmm. stop it Mm -hmm. because we're going to help him. I'm going to get him out of this. He's going to come home. And the last time I saw him, it was like August 26th of 2021. And the social worker that never gave up on him, although he had aged out, called me and said, Terry, Josh was in the street. 
the only thing he can say is call my mom. He's not speaking. He can't get up. He can't do anything. So I got down there and I spent probably four or five hours with him. And I came away knowing, just knowing, God, you need to take him. I can't do anything else. The life he's living is not a life. I don't, I don't know what else to do. And six weeks to the day, the police showed up at my door and let me know what had happened to him. But one of the, Joshua got people off the streets and he was one. I have so many friends on my Facebook page that are people that Joshua got off the streets. And Joshua was so giving and so kind and wanted to make everyone smile. Yet his mental illness, Joshua had not really, well, he did have some abuse with his older brothers and sisters that we found out about at a later time, but he had the three mental illnesses that we know of. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of a different scenario, but not, and Right now, I can say Joshua's mission was completed. And it's weird because the grief I have is so, I feel guilty for not feeling guilty. I miss my son, but I am so happy he's no longer in torment. Because you said something earlier about when the couch surfing and things that sometimes people have to do to get what they want. Mm-hmm. Joshua had no money. I wouldn't give him money. I'd take him food. Mm -hmm. And that I try to keep out of my mind because I don't know the horrors that my son faced. Right. I completely understand that. Um, You know, the same thing with Jimmy, um, my ex-husband. I I grieved terribly um, when he first passed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it just around... um, visually watching him pass was hard. Um, But there is this part of me also that can breathe. Right. Because he's no longer in a broken down van on the side of the road in his own feces and, um, you know, eating rotten food. Um, He, he had had a hip replacement in 2013 And um, because of uh, chronic IV use, his body kept um, rejecting that hip. So this last couple of years, he, they took it out and they refused to put it back in um, unless he proved a a year clean. And he was just so determined that he was out there on crutches with no hip bone, with just his leg kind of hanging. And, um, it just blew my mind the level of captivity he was in. Mm-hmm. And so now I know, and, you know, in the moment that he passed, I knew that he is everywhere now, except for in that place. Right. And so he is free. He has been liberated and he is part of this universe and every memory is etched on every fabric of this place. Right. He is no longer suffering. Right. You know, one thing that I find that you just sort of reminded me of is a lot of times I'll run into people that know of the struggle mm-hmm. and know what happened to Joshua. And they're afraid to bring his name up to me because 
they don't want to hurt me or they don't want me to have to revisit. I do that every day. Mm-hmm. And if I hear my son's name or someone speaks to me about Joshua, he lives. Right. He, my son is still here. He's being remembered. He's, and do you, do you feel that way? I do. And in, in this case, it's, it's been awkward for people because I'm remarried mm-hmm. um, of whether or not they should bring it up or if right. it's appropriate that we talk about or or should I be grieving out loud um, about my ex-husband. And, um, and so sometimes I do feel like I'm in an isolated place um, mm-hmm. because I do feel very determined to keep his memories alive. Right. And That's so... Cool. One of the things that has been, my current husband is pretty incredible. Um, in he the looks fact like it. He is, he is, he really is. Um, you know, one, he let me go spend the last five days of Jimmy's life with him in the hospital. And I know that was incredibly hard for him. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we also planned uh, Jimmy's a memorial And, um, we also purchased the floating urn that went out to the ocean for him. And, um, he supported, um, my, my planning, all of it. And, you know, and then we went up together as a family, um, to the place that Jimmy and I used to fish, um, Mm -hmm. all of the time. And, um, you know, Ryan had never really been into fishing, but he was willing. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to teach the boys to fish. And that was something that I wanted to do. It was important to me because it was important to Jimmy to teach me. And, um, and that's something that I promised him, you know, when he was passing um, in the hospital is that everything you've ever taught me, I will teach others. And that you will live through all of those things, through your music, through the way you love the outdoors and hiking and fishing. And, um, and our family has changed since that, because we, we live in Jimmy's adventures now, you know, he was unable to experience all of the things that he wanted to because of his captivity to Mm -hmm. heroin. And so we are living them and he's with us and we're with him and he's very much a part of our, our family and, and the things that we do. And so, um, I can, I can see and feel how important it is for you to have those conversations continued about Joshua and, and doing things that he loved and listening to the music that he loved. Right. Right you know, you're talking about people feeling awkward because you're married again. But if you look at it on a purely human playing field, he deserves as much as anyone to be remembered and loved and have someone there with him in his final days and someone that knows everything about him has nothing to do with marriage or it's compassion. Right. It's compassion. Our heart was that in his final five days that he felt like home and I was home to him, you know, Mm -hmm. his mother came down and, um, his sister was there, but, um, when he saw me and he hadn't seen me in seven years and, um, 
when he saw, saw me, he said, oh, baby doll, I thought I would never see you again. And I sat down and I said, oh, no, I promised. And so, and then we sat there for five days and we talked about fishing and, you know, all of the just radical things he used to do. And one of the things they teach you um, when you're sitting bedside with someone actively dying is the remember wins. Mm -hmm. And so, um, because depression um, and anxiety sets in really deeply with them, especially when they know they're dying. Right. Um, And so, and it makes the body hurt worse in those moments. And so continuing to keep them in joyful moments and memories and. Mm-hmm. And can you just imagine how you would feel now had you not done that? I, yeah, there's just no way going That's back. Horrible, that I could not have. Mm-hmm. Horrible thing to think of. Wow. Crystal. So. Tell me how people can get a hold of you. And I watch you on Facebook all the time. And I'm just, I'm amazed. I'm amazed by the work you do. And I'm also amazed by the quality time you spend with your family now. So it looks like you have a pretty good balance, which you have to have Mm -hmm. to do the work that you're doing. Yes, absolutely. So important. I'm always telling my team on the weekends, go outside, put your feet to the ground. You have right. to. Um, so yeah. Um, if they, if someone wants to get a hold of me for, um, for organizational reasons, so they can go to our website at, um, pdxsaintslove.org. Okay. They can also email us at info at pdxsaints.org love.com or we have our individual emails on our staff page on our okay website too okay do you have do you have a facebook page or for your organization or um instagram or anything we have instagram twitter facebook i think all of those links are on our website as well okay so i can put them in the show notes then yeah yeah absolutely and people can get a hold of you Mm-hmm. And wow. as far as personally, um, I accept friend requests on Facebook. Um, I love meeting new people. Um, I talk a lot about spirituality and religion, and sometimes that ruffles some feathers. Um, I like to write. It's one of my very favorite things to do. Mm-hmm. And so I do put lots of little excerpts on um, on Facebook from some of my writing. Yes, yes. You have a beautiful page. Thank you. It's always inspirational. Thank you. And it's very, I stayed away from social media for a while because things were so divisive Mm -hmm. and so angry and everyone just was, they, no one was nice to each other and coming to a page like yours, it's calming Mm -hmm. and inspirational and it's hopeful. And then to look at you And you're describing more in depth than I had known. I mean, we've talked about this before, but you're describing more in depth than I had ever known about what you have gone through. And to look at you, no one would ever think that. Mm. And to be a peer and not purely someone that has learned the ropes, not really learned the ropes, but they're speaking from an academic standpoint. Mm -hmm. 
you can't do that. No. You have to be a peer to reach these people. They have to be able to trust you and know that you've gone through what you've gone through. That's right. Like so I tell everyone, that. if you want to heal this city, we need all of those kids that came from the school of hard knocks. Right. That's what we need. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Crystal, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I know it's been hard to connect and I'm so glad that we were able to do this. And your story is, is absolutely remarkable. Thank you. Thank you. I feel grateful and blessed. I do as well. Well, thank you again. And I will put, like I said, I will put all your information in the show notes and people can contact you if they need you or if they have someone that needs help, someone needs to reach out and you are, you're down, you said you're headquartered down in Lentz. Are you down there often on a schedule? Um, so we have our, um, we have a Monday community wellness fair and that happens every Monday in Lentz Park in the Upper okay. East Side um, parking lot there. And um, we have a shower truck. We have multiple community partners. So we have a shower truck, um, haircuts, hot meal, fresh produce. Usually Care Oregon is on site with us, Portland Street Response. Um, yeah. And then um, every Friday night is our longest running outreach. Um, it was the outreach where I used to drive around in my car on Fridays. Um, now we're in the park and we serve upwards of 130, 150 people. Wow. And we play music and everyone lays out blankets in the um, park and they hang out and it's, it's very community oriented. It's not service provider provider versus client. Um, it's just us doing life together. And that's awesome because that's what a lot of these people, that's what everyone needs is a sense of community. And if you feel yeah. like you're out of a certain community, you, you're going to shun it. You're going to get away for, from it. Right. So opening that up is just opening doors for other people to heal. It really is. Yeah. We have a pool of about 60 volunteers and we don't ever need that many. Um, but people just come out and sit at the picnic tables and sit in the grass with our unhoused community and build relationships. And um, it's amazing. And I think that what others don't realize is that sometimes it's the people who are living in houses that need that relationship the most. We exactly. get so siloed, you know, so. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you again. And just go forth and spread the sunshine that you're spreading thank and the you. hope. Amen. Yes. Yes. Okay, Crystal, I'll let you go and enjoy your day and be blessed. Thanks so much, Terry. Oh, thank you. Bye -bye. And hopefully I will see you again sometime soon. Yes, let's do that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Okay, okay. Crystal. Bye. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Wow. Blown away. I just met Crystal recently, as I said, and was immediately drawn to her in her story. But I had no idea the depth of what she had gone through, what she's overcome, I watch her now with her nonprofit, and this is a woman who is committed, who is absolutely incredible, and I'm going to leave all of the information for her contact 
and if you need help, if you know someone in the Portland area that does need help, get in touch with Crystal. She will not let you down and she will, she's bulldog. She will help you get the help that you need. Thank you again for listening or watching if you're watching on the video version. I really appreciate it. Go show Crystal some love and thank you so, so much. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.